12. We're reading verses 28 through 44 this morning, Mark chapter 12. As we continue working our way through the Gospel of Mark, reading from the English Standard Version translation. Mark 12, verse 38. And in his teaching, Jesus, in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Our Father, as your Holy Spirit inspired the writer Mark to report what Jesus taught and what Jesus presented, we pray that we would have that same Holy Spirit guiding and enabling us to understand what is so important in this passage. Teach us things that we could not learn any other place but in Scripture. Teach us about Jesus and His love for us. Teach us in such a way that we desire to be more faithful to Your Son. In His name we pray. Amen. Now, these two stories which Mark places side by side, uh, in one sense, only have one thing in common. Uh, the first story mentions widows, and then the second story mentions the poor widow. But they have a deeper connection because both are about the religious life. Now, when I say religious here, let me understand. Let me let you understand that I'm talking about the religion that is Judeo-Christianity, the religion of of God's people under the Old Covenant, the religion of God's people under the New Covenant. When I speak of religion in this message today, I'm speaking of that. I don't want to speak just of spirituality because that's so vague. We're talking about something definite, something defined, something the the Bible has presented that's very clear. Uh, How did God reveal himself in the Old Testament times? How has God revealed himself preeminently in Jesus Christ? And in a formal sense, that is the one true religion. No other religion is true. So I'm using the term in that sense, uh, not to deny the fact that the essence of the Christian faith is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But for us to understand, when I speak of religious life, I'm talking about the kinds of activities that were common to the Jews during their religious life during the time of Jesus. And I'm talking about us. What is our religious life like? What is it like when we are faithfully following the Lord Jesus? Now, what we have here in these two stories are two opposite perspectives presented on the religious life. But they also represent 
two uh, opposite kinds of religious roles. And that ought to be obvious as you think about the differences between the scribes and this widow. On the one hand, the scribes represent what we would commonly call the clergy, those who are professionally ministers, those who get their living by their teaching and preaching. Then on the other side, we see, oh, and with respect to the clergy, their professional life and their, their personal life, religious life, all of that is wrapped up together. Now, on the other side, you have this poor widow, and she has a religious life as well. But she doesn't have any public role. She doesn't have any professional role. You could not call the poor widow a, quote, professional Christian. Clergies, you could call them professional Christians. So there's that difference between them. But what Jesus has to say here represents uh, a distinct difference, not so much in their roles, but in the way they're living out their religious lives. You see, Jesus is actually presenting a judgment on both. He's presenting a judgment on the scribes because he's going to call their religious life hypocrisy. Then he's going to present a judgment on the widow because he's going to show us that her religious life is all about sacrifice. So that contrast is at the heart of what we're looking at right now. Uh, We can say on the one hand, condemnation with respect to religious hypocrisy. On the other hand, we can say commendation for religious sacrifice when that sacrifice is for the ultimate right reasons. Now that's the heart of what Mark is presenting here, the heart of what Jesus is giving us in these two stories. So what's the main lesson that we're going to see out of looking at these two things? Well, we could state it this way. Nothing is so hurtful to our faith than a life that contradicts the calling to follow Jesus faithfully. But then nothing is so strengthening to our faith than trusting God enough to sacrifice everything for Jesus. Let me say that again. The the double lesson we see here is that nothing is so hurtful to our faith as Christians than, than that which is going to contradict the calling to follow Jesus faithfully. But nothing is so strengthening to our faith than the willingness to trust God to such an extent that we're willing to live whatever sacrifices Jesus might call us to make. So on the one hand, it's hypocrisy in the religious life. The other hand is sacrifice in the religious life. So we're going to see what Jesus condemns, religious hypocrisy. We're going to see what Jesus commends, which is religious sacrifice. And then we're going to see how that applies to us in our day, seeking to live Christ-centered lives. Now, what Jesus condemns in this passage is religious hypocrisy. If you were to read the parallel passage in Matthew, uh, there's most of a chapter, Matthew chapter 3, devoted to what Jesus is doing here when he's pronouncing these woes and condemnations upon the scribes and the Pharisees because of all the things they do which are hypocritical. He exposes and condemns their hypocrisy. Now, let me put this in a manner which we can understand today. How many of you have heard the term virtue signaling? Okay, just a small number of you. 
uh, you don't get out of the house enough. <laughs> no, perhaps you don't find yourself addicted to social media or to read the kind of things that happen in social media. But every time something uh, new happens out there that, that something's got to be condemned, all sorts of people will jump on social media and condemn it at the same time that it gets condemned. And it might be anything. It might be for those who are politically on the right. It might be those who are politically on the left. It might be those who are politically in no man's land. But they're going to get out there and they're, they're, they're going to condemn what a lot of people condemn. They're going to uh, celebrate what a lot of people celebrate. They're going to put their message out there. It's been recognized that much of that is what's called virtue signaling. Now, what does that mean? Well, it, it, it's when you display something publicly by a statement in social media or by some kind of action out there in the public in which what you're doing is to allow everybody else knows that you're with them celebrating what needs to be condemned or condemning what needs to be condemned or celebrating what needs to be celebrated. You're making sure that everybody knows that you're in the right camp morally. You want everybody to know that you're part of that too. So whatever it might be. Virtue signaling. You want people to see that you're doing the right thing, so you say the right thing in those kind of social media contexts. But virtue signaling is the term that says that's not real virtue. It's not real virtue. When you're signaling your virtues, that's not real virtue. Because the real reason you're doing it is you're making this act public. You're making this act so that it can be seen by other people. That's your real motivation. It's not for the sake of helping anyone who really needs to be helped. It's not so much that what you do is ever going to help anybody. Virtue signaling by your actions or by your speech is a way of saying, hey, I'm one of the good guys too. It's a way of building your reputation, enhancing your reputation, so people will see that you are on the right side, that you're one of the good guys, that you have this virtue. Now, this is the very thing that Jesus condemns. Nothing in the ministry of Jesus received any greater condemnation than this kind of activity, religious virtue signaling. Matthew 6, Jesus begins that section of the Sermon on the Mount with these words, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men, before other people, in order to be seen by them. Or in other words, beware of putting your voice out there on social media in a righteous way so that others will see you. That's what we're talking about. Jesus then goes on to say, For you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Which means when you virtue signal your righteousness, God doesn't regard it as righteousness. This is why Jesus condemned religious hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy was what was going on in ways in which the religious leaders, the, the clergy, were demonstrating to others, we are really the ones who are the righteous dudes. We are the ones that you all ought to look up to because our righteousness is exceptional. Now, Mark records six ways in the Mark passage that Jesus points out this religious hypocrisy, this religious virtue signaling. First, he says religious garments. 
they go about wearing these long robes that would stand out to everybody, pointing out that they belong to this clergy class. They are special. They're holy. Second, Jesus condemns their desire for, for human recognition. They wanted to go into the marketplaces and be given these respectful greetings. Hello there, Dr. So-and-so. Hello there, Father. Hello, whatever you might be. Whatever your title might be, that's what they were looking for. They weren't in the marketplace to find people who needed help. They were in the marketplace so that they would find people who would celebrate who they were. Thirdly, Jesus warns about where you sit in church. (laughs) In the Hebrew synagogue, they had these special seats up front, and then they had the places for everybody else. And the scribes would, would come up and sit up in front because those were the places of honor. Then Jesus mentions about the religious festivals. You know, Israel had, at this time, biblical time, four very significant religious festivals. At those festivals, there was great feasting. And so it was always the case that they were looking for the places of honor at these feasts. Or if you invited someone over for a big meal, the, the scribes would want to have the places of honor at those meals. Jesus then notes greed, greediness. Because he talks about how they preyed upon widows in terms of depriving widows of their houses and property. They were enriching their livelihood in that way. They looked upon rich widows as easy prey. Now, let me say something about that. In biblical times, it was not uncommon at all and wasn't wrong uh, for religious leaders, rabbis and so forth, to receive support from other people, to receive support from widows, to receive support from women. Because even Jesus and his disciples were financially supported in this way. Uh, Luke points this out. Luke chapter 8, verse 2. Speaking of the women who were part and who followed the ministry of Christ. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And Susanna. And many others who provided for them out of their means. So here were women who were women of means who were supporting Jesus and his disciples. So so that in and of itself isn't wrong. The practice isn't wrong, but it could be abused. And it was abused by the scribes, or Jesus wouldn't have, have called them out on this. So recently, because I was going to be preaching on this, I was thinking about these things, I had a, an uninitiated conversation with a, with, a, with a pastor in the PCA who is a staff pastor who shared that over the history of his church, and of course you know it isn't our church, uh, there was a widow in it who was a, not a millionaire. She was a billionaire. She was a billionaire. And he said, if, if he mentioned her name, I would recognize the name. So apparently wealthy, famous, and so forth. But it had been the habit of that church leadership over the years that every time they outspent their budget, they would go to her and essentially say, would you bail us out? Now, of course, if she had tithed to that church, nobody else would ever have to give to that church. So she tried to be prudent about what she gave to the church. Then a new pastor came along a few years ago. He found out about this practice. And he didn't like the fact that she was their safety net. He felt that was actually abusive. He went to her and he apologized. First, he thanked her for her generosity, but he apologized 
that the church leadership and the church had not been faithful stewards of how they spent their money. And he didn't want the church leaders to ever abuse her kindness again. And he said he wanted to make it clear to her from the leadership at that point, it's never your Christian duty to bail us out. And I'm listening to this, I'm going, that was a godly pastor who wasn't going to, in any sense, abuse a rich widow in that sense, but to let her giving be spontaneous and free as she felt led, not as she might feel pressured from the leadership of the church. Well, so Jesus, I think Jesus would have said to that pastor, good man, that's the way it's supposed to be. Don't abuse widows. Then verse 6, Jesus attacks the prayers of these scribes and Pharisees. See, they're praying so that the human audience will hear them and say, wow, that's a righteous dude. Let me tell you this, please. Don't ever thank a pastor for how well he prays. When a pastor or elder has stood and prayed well in the pulpit, understand this. The devil has already said, great job. The devil has already patted him on the back. The devil has already said, yeah, that was a great prayer. You see, we're not supposed to be praised for our prayers. Don't praise pastors for their prayers. Or they will want to be seen and heard for the sake of their prayers as opposed to praying sincerely out of their hearts to God. Look, all of these things that the clergy here, the scribes get condemned for, they are temptations to pastors. Now, of course, today it's not long robes. It's skinny hipster jeans. You know, that's what it is. Now, what's the punchline? Verse 40. They shall receive the greater condemnation. That is a powerful statement to the people of God and to those who lead the people of God. Religious leaders will receive a greater condemnation if they are involved in hypocrisy. Uh, James picked up that same principle, James chapter 3, verse 1, and he said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a stricter, with a greater strictness. The reason is that those who teach the Christian faith are guides for others, and if our guidance and teaching is false, that's bad. But if our guidance and teaching is biblically correct, but then we contradict it by how we live, that so deeply discredits the message that we have actually deeply distorted the very means by which God would save human beings. Religious hypocrisy in religious leaders is very, very serious. And, and therefore, believers, you need to pray for your elders. You need to pray for your deacons. You need to pray for your pastors. God, deliver these men. Deliver them out of of religious hypocrisy.
save them from it. But it also has a further application to all of us as Christians, as believers. Among the ways we can sin and do sin, we can't really do worse than being hypocrites. You know this. What's the number one reason why when you ask people about church, they say, I don't want to go there and be with all those hypocrites. There is a sad testimony to non-believers that that far too many Christians are hypocrites. I wish I could say that's a false statement about Christians. But even on our travels, on this recent trip, I'm talking to some people about just life. And because they know my pastor, they immediately appeal to me and say certain things about And I thought, wow, how incredibly judgmental you as a Christian are stating these things about someone who's not a Christian. And I'm thinking, does that attitude come out in how you treat them? Do do they see your speech, your actions, your attitudes as, as judgmental toward them? Doesn't mean you endorse what they do, but... But the way you react, the way you speak, the way you treat them. Look, look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, 5, and 6. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Running people off is not the best use of your time. Let your speech always be the opposite of judgmentalism, gracious. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Salt makes people thirsty. That you may know how to answer each person that you speak to. That's how we need to be. Now, getting on to the second major point here. Verse 41 to 44, what Jesus commends. Religious sacrifice for the right reasons. This is authentic sacrifice. That's what the poor widow is doing with, with, with her giving. Authentic sacrifice is what her action represents. Now, I want to begin with a couple of background points so you can understand this a little bit better. First, the location of the treasury. This, this isn't a big point, but people get confused about this. Um, you have the offering boxes were in that part of the temple that's called the court of the women. But it wasn't because only women could come into the court of the women. That's not the case. It was only that the women could go no further. They couldn't go any further into, only the, the men and the priests could go further into the, to the temple. But within the court of the, of, the, of the women, there were 13 large trumpet-shaped receptacles to receive various kinds of offerings, by the way, various kinds of offerings. And so the, the ESV translates as offering boxes, and that's close enough. So everyone who came to the temple was to bring a, a certain kind of offering. Now, theological background, widowhood. Look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 8. This is important for the story here. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a woman has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their parents, to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. I believe Paul understood what he says there in verse 5 from this story, from Jesus commending this poor widow. A widow, biblically, is not simply a woman who's lost her husband, but she's lost her husband, plus she doesn't have anyone else when her husband has died to actually take care of her. No other relatives, no other family members. That's the widow indeed. 
So Paul's description to Timothy here is exactly the kind of widow that Jesus is presenting here in this story. Now, the specific act of this woman is exceptional. What I mean by this? This is a widow. She's truly a widow. She doesn't have any family. No one relies upon her. Uh, She has no family to take care of. She has no stewardship responsibility for family members. Uh, There's nothing that she owes to other human beings in that way. She lives unencumbered in this life as a poor widow. Now, that's important to recognize because this passage has been taken, sacrificial giving, and it has been used wrongly where people have surrendered everything to follow Jesus and left wife and children destitute. These kinds of things have happened in the history of the church. Or they may be under some bad teaching that says you can't outgive God, so if you give everything to God, God will give everything back to you. See the sacrificial giving of the poor widow. God took care of this widow. He'll take care of you. And so there have been people who have you know, sold their mortgages, cars, everything, given it to the church. The pastor then does better because he gets more money. And then they're left destitute. This has happened. It's happened in our country. It's happened in other parts of the world. That violates what Paul says a few verses later in chapter 5. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I like the King James. Worse than an infidel. What could be worse than an infidel? Nothing could be worse than an infidel. So we have to understand that this poor widow here is someone who doesn't have those responsibilities. Jesus sees this woman. She's a poor widow. She's a widow indeed. And then Paul says, a widow left all alone who has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. So godly, poor widow. Now, nevertheless, her specific act is fully sacrificial. It's deeply commended by Jesus. Jesus gives us a contrast here. Others are giving out the abundance of what they have. The rich given are still rich. But this widow is giving out of her poverty. She's giving all that she has to live on. That's true sacrifice. Now, what is interesting is about the precise amount which she gave. The priest, in terms of their regulations and so forth, had stated an exact minimum which could be given, that you couldn't give less than this in terms of the temple offering. That exact minimum was two of these small copper coins. Now that tells us something about her gift and her motivation. This is what she gives, two small copper coins. So first she's motivated to give to the Lord. She wants to do this. It's her heart's desire. But she couldn't give any less You follow me? Uh, It wasn't possible for her to take these two small copper coins, all she had to live on, and tithe on them. It wasn't allowed because the minimum was much greater than that. She couldn't even give half, give half to the Lord, live on half. She couldn't even give half of what she had. Uh, It was still not an acceptable offering if she gave half of what she... Here she was, wanting to worship her God wanting to give to him out of a heart of her gratitude, and all she could give was all she had. 
That's the main truth. This is what she does. She gives all to God, all she has to live on. And this is the heart of the lesson that Jesus is teaching. Jesus, the story rebukes all religious hypocrisy, where people do all this stuff in the name of God for self-aggrandizement, for increasing their public reputation. It's a rebuke. Jesus then tells a story about the widow because it tells us the deep things about what it really means to love God and to serve God and to live for God. One commentator put it this way, with God, it is all or nothing. Love cannot be tithed like money. Few can honestly sing all to Jesus I surrender. But God requires nothing less. That's why the gift. The only gift we have, the only offering we have, which is large enough to give to God, is everything that we are. You know, it's like the words in our Trinity hymnal. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Now imagine the disciples listening to what Jesus says, thinking about this widow. What was Jesus saying to them? What was this supposed to mean to them? Well, that's the question for us. What does the widow's sacrifice mean for us in light of the gospel? What does it mean with respect to living a Christ-centered, gospel-purposed life? Well, first, if the Christian life is all for Jesus, then we need to long to be free of hypocrisy. It needs to be part of our aim spiritually in terms of our prayers and our Bible readings, our confession, that we would be seeking after Christ's likeness, that in that seeking after Christ's likeness, we would be praying that we might be free from hypocrisy. And we need lots of grace and lots of the sanctifying work of God's Word and Spirit to keep us from being seen this way to be kept from desiring to be seen by others as a godly, holy, righteous Christian. Second, if the Christian life is all for Jesus, there has to be the category of sacrifice in our lives. The category of sacrifice. That is to say, we, it means looking at our lives, how we live, and we need to be purposeful in the sense that we need to be able to say, that sacrifice must be both possible and actual in our lives. We have to be willing to say, God, sacrifice must be something possible and actual in my life as a Christian. Now, how this works out practically will differ from one Christian to another. It will differ from one Christian family to another what it means to embrace the concept that the Christian life has sacrifice in it. But if you look at the widow, 
there are some things that are common to all with respect to sacrifice. Do we trust God like the widow trusted God? Do we love God like the widow loved God? Do we desire to serve God like the widow desired to serve God? To give to God everything we are to live in such a way that it's all for Jesus. That means there will be sacrifice in our lives. Now, finally, this is not the kind of thing that can happen out of willpower. You can't sit here and say, okay, for the next 40 days, I'm going to give up dark chocolate for the sake of Jesus. That's going to be my sacrifice. (laughs) I mean, maybe you should, but we're not talking about that. We're not talking about something you can do out of your willpower. We're talking about what we always need in terms of living the Christian life. We need the grace to see, the grace to understand, the grace to value more deeply who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. To know His love more will move us to love Him more. The more you know and understand Jesus, who He is and what He has done for you, the more you will love Him and be motivated out of grace and gratitude to put Him first and foremost in your life. In the story here, the widow who gave everything to God, we see Jesus. The widow represents Jesus. Because Jesus gave everything to His Father so that He might provide everything for you that you might live also holy for God. The beloved Son of the Father gave Himself as the necessary sacrifice and atonement for our sins. Jesus is our redemption. Through His blood, we have the forgiveness of all of our trespasses according to the lavishness of God's grace. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for us, for we who are the ungodly, to demonstrate that God loves us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He Himself bore in His body upon the tree of Calvary our sins, that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. By His wounds we are healed. For God has done in Christ what the law and all of our own efforts at morality could never do, weakened by our flesh. By sending God's own Son in the likeness of our own flesh as a sin offering, God condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, according to what Jesus has done for us. That's why we say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, if any of us is in Christ Jesus, We are new creations. The old has passed away. The new has come. For God has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The Apostle Paul put this 
this way. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus gave his all to God, all for us, that we might give all to Jesus. This is our calling as Christians, to follow Jesus faithfully for Jesus' sake. For nothing will so strengthen our faith than trusting God enough to live for his son sacrificially. Amen.